This podcast is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To view faculty disclosures or to learn how to claim CME credit, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Lantheus Medical Imaging, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Uh, good evening. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm a professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, it's really my pleasure to host another of our educational podcast series. Uh, and this specifically falls in our series uh, called the Expert Exchange Podcast Series Discussions in Genital Urinary Cancers. Uh, it's really my pleasure to uh, introduce to you uh, Dr. Michael Cookson. Uh, Dr. Cookson is a professor and chair of urology at the University of Oklahoma Department of Urology. Uh, he's also the uh, president of the SUO, Society of Urologic Oncology, and uh, was the vice chair of the Advanced Prostate Cancer uh, Guidelines. Uh, Mike, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Really our pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's always nice to represent um, such a tremendous group and a lot of work. And, you know, th this um, AUA guidelines is really AUA, ASCO, ASTRO, and SDO guidelines. It was uh, a labor of love from a multidisciplinary panel, a lot of heavy lifting from the AUA to assemble, call through those thousands of papers and things. But it's, it's great to be here tonight and to uh, represent the guidelines. Uh, outstanding. So two of our learning objectives for today are really to, to talk about some of the evidence and the outcomes of the treatment for uh, metastatic hormone sensitive, as well as M0 and M1 castrate resistant prostate cancer, as outlined in the uh, the guidelines that Dr. Cookson just talked about. And, and then certainly to um, improve our diagnostic and decision making uh, through the illustration of how these guidelines uh, can be applied into clinical practice. Um, so Mike, you alluded to this a little bit, but maybe let's just start off for our audience and, and take us through a little bit. How, how were these guidelines um, constructed? And, and I think you mentioned that this was sort of a, a, a multi-specialty sort of labor of love. That's exactly right. You know, it, it's been said that we're sort of drowning in information and we're starving for knowledge. And I think prostate cancer hits that home pretty well. So what the guidelines did is they, they look through thousands of articles and they usually pick a defined time and they picked 1998 to bring it forward to, I believe the cut point around January of 2020. Um, but through those thousands of articles, about somewhere around 190 of those actually, um, those publications had evidence in them and uh, made, the, made the final cut to, to sort and, and see where they fit in. Um, and then they're also, as you mentioned, there was a previous guidelines. The first guideline we did for advanced prostate cancer was really focused where the evidence was, and that was in the castration resistant um, disease state. And so we carried over about 46 articles from there. And because this is such a, um, you know, happening in real time, lots of exciting new developments, uh, we picked up an additional like 26, even after we 
we ended our timeline. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fair amount of data somewhere in that 220, 250 range and always constant gardening, new articles coming out, new good evidence from large randomized trials. And so that gets put together. One of the things that was amazing and also um, very uh, insightful was this was the first time that we really had guidelines within our professional organization for men when it came to administering hormonal therapy in metastatic disease. So you think about Huggins and Hodges and the discoveries in the 40s, and we've known and managed men with advanced prostate cancer, newly diagnosed metastatic disease for years. It's really kind of bread and butter for us, but yeah, we really didn't have guidance. And part of that was due to the fact there wasn't good data. Everyone was either treated or not, and there wasn't any randomization. There really wasn't any additional therapies. And so it was when these other added therapies came to play that we felt like now's a good time to really, you know, bring it to the metastatic and even the biochemical recurrent disease state. And that, that's what these guidelines did. Hmm. So let's start maybe talking about some of the, the key elements of the guidelines. And, and maybe we'll just start at the very beginning, which is, so if, if we are seeing, for example, in our office, patients who have a, a suspected uh, suspicion for advanced prostate cancer, um, how are we really recommended to evaluate these patients, number one? And two, what are some of the components of counseling that need to play in here? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, you know, these patients come to us different ways. And Sometimes we've had a prior diagnosis and the confirmation of prostate cancer was established early in their, in their um, disease process, but sometimes they present de novo metastatic. And so it was felt that a histologic confirmation of their prostate cancer would be important. And we can all think of examples where maybe we thought that we had the diagnosis right and we didn't. So when possible, it's good to confirm that diagnosis with a biopsy, and that biopsy could be from the primary tumor, it could be from a metastatic site, but you wanna get some tissue to histologically confirm it, except in those rare emergency situations, and then you have time to go back and do that a little bit later. Um, so when you establish the diagnosis, then it's important to complete that staging for these men with advanced disease. But before you do that, you know, you need to consider what you're headed for. And that has to do a lot with the patient's age, their comorbidities, their life expectancy, um, tumor characteristics, patient preferences. And, and then the management, when possible, is, is best with a multidisciplinary approach. And we can talk about that a little bit later because that varies with the practice that you're in and it varies with location and the setting that you're in, you're rural versus urban. So there, there's a lot of different ways to, to slice that, but definitely a multidisciplinary approach with medical oncology, neurologic oncology, having urologists involved, having even radiation therapists, nuclear medicine, pathology, nutrition. There's so many different ways. And now we're even involving genetic counseling that the team can get quite large, but the patient benefits when we incorporate these additional uh, members to the multidisciplinary approach. No, that's a, that's great. It's an outstanding point. So what, let's maybe break it down as, as a starting point. So let's say that we have a patient who has had uh, 
definitive local therapy, and uh, whether that be maybe prostatectomy or plus radiotherapy or radiotherapy alone. And, and the, the, we're now seeing evidence of a biochemical recurrence. Um, how, what do the guidelines suggest with regards to how do we evaluate these patients? And then what is sort of the follow-up of these patients with a biochemical recurrence? Well, this is a, such a common problem. You know, 20 to 30% of men ultimately will fail after local therapies. And so we definitely see this as a common problem. And historically, uh, PSA measurements were part of, of that. And we didn't have a lot more than that. But um, it's usually recommended to follow the PSAs along. In the most common scenario, especially in the low-level PSA, um, oftentimes it's really surveillance, observation, it's not a rush to treatment, um, and, and we try to calm them. We all are aware that PSA also stands for patient-specific anxiety, and they live and die by that number, and you have to really work hard to counsel them that, you know, as long as it is just a rising PSA, depending on what that is, it, it's often not a disease in and of itself. But when the PSA starts to rise more rapidly, and there are a lot of calculators out there that you can simply plug in the times and the numbers, um, and it takes time. So, you know, usually six-month intervals for these PSAs. But when you find that their PSA doubling time is getting in less than a year, somewhere in that less than 10 months, th those patients ultimately fairly quickly within a couple of years can develop metastatic disease. So you usually stage them. And historically, that was a bone scan and a CT. And we were frustrated because, especially in the lower PSA levels, you never really saw anything. And, um, but now it's a new era. And we've just gotten approved two new PSMA uh, PET scans. Uh, we've had in selected places choline PET and then the flucyclovine, which is the Oxumin scan. And it's available almost everywhere in the United States currently. But these new PET scans are changing um, the way that we evaluate these men and probably will change the way that we treat them as we learn more about where actually that PSA signal is coming from. But in general, when we have patients with a rising PSA, whether it's conventional or novel PET imaging, and we don't have evidence of disease, then we try to observe them because we don't have good data right now currently that starting a treatment earlier is going to make them live longer and we know there's side effects. However, um, we know there's a point, whether that's a PSA level or that doubling time, anxiety, a shared decision with you and your patient, where you do institute treatment and we realize that that's an important component. And when you do do that for the reasons that we've listed, um, consideration for intermittent therapy is, is, this is a place where that really can potentially work because the few studies that are out there suggest that um, you can, you know, reduce some of the harms or the side effects, adverse events that occur with the hormonal therapy and not result in an inferior outcome. And overall, we won't really change their survival. So um, intermittent therapy should certainly be considered when the trigger to treat is simply a rise in the PSA. So Mike, um, two, two questions based on uh, what you just talked about, and maybe this is more, and I, I suspect it'll vary from person to person, but maybe your own just practice pattern, which is, I think one of the challenges with the, the novel PET imaging is 
um, perhaps at what threshold are we getting meaningful data? So we have this new tool and, and therefore, as you alluded to, uh, its accuracy perhaps for uh, sites of recurrence is, is better than our conventional imaging modalities. Is there a certain threshold that you personally use in your practice of, okay, this is a threshold where these, these tests may be, these PSA, PSMA or axiomin-based tests would have value, um, or does it depend on, on velocity or individual scenario? Yeah, so th that's a great question. And, you know, these are just becoming available. So really we have clinical trial information maybe about how the sensitivity of these tests can be done. I think most people think that with the new PSMA, somewhere in that range of around 0.5, you might start to see some areas that are small, small volume nodes, retroperitoneal nodes, even some small bone lesions. But I think you know somewhere between 0.5 and 1.0, you could potentially see things. I will say that I probably order more in that low range and don't find anything um, than maybe what some of the studies may suggest, whether that's um, experience, reader, um, there's a whole lot of, you know, learning curve for that information as well. But I, I would think that generally we're going to start seeing things about that range below that. I'm not sure, you know, and so I think we'll have to get kind of real world experience with it beyond the clinical trials to really see in your own practice where that value is added. Sure. And maybe my second question related to, to what you just talked to us about is when, when you look at intermittent versus continuous ADT, um, in your practice, what is intermittent? Is that uh, um, a year on, a year off? Is that, um, and, and I realize, again, this is another question which likely varies from person to person, but how do you sort of use intermittent in your practice? Yeah. Well, so, you know, it, it has a companion test, right? The testosterone. The, the original um, studies looked at sort of PSA cut points and when, you know, they'd give them eight months of therapy, stop the therapy, and when the PSA went back up to a predefined number, um, that could be four, that could be eight, that could be 10, then they reinstituted the therapy. Um, I think on an individual basis, it sort of, it, you have to, you know, use the patient's anxiety as well, because if you initiate a therapy for a PSA that was around four, he's probably not willing to let it rise back up to eight, nine, or 10, like a study might've done. So I think you watch the testosterone and the recovery of that can be slow, as you know, especially with you know the conventional um, agonists. With the antagonists, the new oral agents, there is a, rapid, a more rapid recovery of testosterone, haven't been in use long enough to really get a good feel for that on intermittent therapy, but that is a theoretical advantage of it. Um, however, uh, when we watch their PSAs um, come back up and their testosterones come back up at some point, you'll decide. And again, there's no one size fits all. So I think you, you know, kind of depends on what you're treating and the level at which you instituted the initial treatment. And then really how burdensome are those side effects? Some patients, you know, really, really bothered by their hot flashes and um, the fatigue and the other side effects of ADT. And so they, they really would, would hold off longer and somebody who really didn't have as much, and then you know they're more willing to go back on just to watch their number come back down. Makes sense. So, so maybe we'll pivot now, and we'll go to sort of the next, you know, sort of uh, maybe group of patients or or scenario, which is these men who have uh, newly diagnosed uh, 
documented, radiographically documented metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. So, so maybe first um, take us through um, how do we define um, maybe the extent of metastatic disease? What, what are the, the broad criteria that we should be thinking about as we define these patients? Yeah. Well, um, you know, right now, what we have tried to do is infer from some of the ways the clinical trials were designed as to the burden of disease because there was some correlation with response to therapy. But so we can, you know, go over, for example, the charted definition. Um, I think these will change with time and they'll be probably more precision based, more biologic, and more genetic based. But be that as it may, some of the trials that were designed. Uh, such as the stampede trials and the charted trials did subdivide patients with metastatic disease. And um, if they were determined to be high volume, those were patients that had say four or more bone lesions and at least one of those outside of the mainframe or the spine and the pelvis um, and, and or the presence, if you had soft tissue disease, that would also qualify as a high volume patient. Um, visceral metastases, you know, liver, lung, soft tissue, that would, would get you into that high volume. And then, of course, lesser, small volume, uh, less than four, the, that bone lesions, for example, that would be more of a low volume patient. We really didn't stratify in the charted trial, and there have been some distinctions we can talk about later, but um, whether patients develop their metastatic disease de novo or whether there is a sort of a progressive a disease state, and that tends to be more common in the you know United States, for example, where a lot of patients have failed local therapies and then they progress to metastatic disease later, as opposed to maybe in Europe where there were a lot more, um, at least before the pandemic. And of course, we're always fighting the battle of PSA screening. But um, when the patients present with metastatic disease, there seems to be a different response. So um, th those distinctions we can talk about. But the reason that the high volume, low volume is, is so um, often used today is because mainly the response born out of the charted trial. And we'll talk about that. So, so we've defined now uh, the, this sort of the different parameters of this metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. What do the guidelines recommend both with regards to uh, testing for the patients as well as treatment for these patients? Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that I need to make sure everyone's aware of, because we're, we're learning all the time about introduction of at least some uh, panels of prostate germline testing. And some men are qualifying based just on their family histories when they present even with an earlier disease state. So it used to just be, we would ask, you know, what, what's your, how many, you know, brothers or uncle, father, anybody had prostate cancer? And we would get an answer and we'd write it down. And if it was three or more, we might start thinking about an inherited risk. But now um, we are aware that a lot of the, the genes that are associated with prostate cancer also run with breast cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic, ovarian. So the family history questions become important. Uh, but if you have a man with newly diagnosed metastatic disease who's never been offered germline testing, that is another opportunity. I really find this challenging to do on the first visit because you're already introducing to them their diagnosis, the stage of their disease, which usually has been, you know, based on a conventional bone scan and a CT scan, you're going to go into the treatments, the side effects of the treatment, prevention of side effects of those treatments. And then you bring in this germline, which has all kinds of permeations for family members, downstream consequences, or the so-called cascade effect. So it's a little overwhelming. 
And so I usually reserve that for like the second visit and, and get them, you know, on board with the treatment plan first. And it's not going to change currently their immediate treatment, but start planting that seed that we're going to do some investigation if they want to, to look into that genetic risk. So that's something that's new and it's in the guidelines. Um, in terms of the treatment, yeah, we used to just have hormonal therapy, right? So we had an LHRH agonist, or now we have um, some injectable and oral antagonists. So that's one of the building blocks. And then there's added to it either additional androgen-directed therapy or chemotherapy. And um, both of those uh, strategies have been superior to just conventional LHRH alone uh, when compared in these large trials. And so um, you know, the, the, one of the trials that was done was the charted trial, one of the earlier ones, and that compared additional docetaxel to the LHRH. And it showed, you know, a significant improvement in overall survival, um, overall by about a year. But in those patients that we talked about, there were high volume, more than four bony metastases, at least one outside of the vertebral column or the spine and the pelvis or visceral mets. Those patients had almost 18 months benefit. And that's huge, right? Because we were used to talking about like chemotherapy with three months advantage in the castration space. And it was a little underwhelming and yet it was an advancement. But of course, taking that chemotherapy back to an earlier disease state has paid much bigger dividends. And so offering patients with high volume disease chemotherapy in addition to their androgen deprivation is a major advancement. There's also the use of the androgen targeted therapies. And so abiraterone, an androgen synthesis inhibitor. It has to be taken with a steroid. Um, that also shows significant overall survival benefit. And then there's other two other agents, the enzalutamide and apalutamide, that also are associated with significant overall survival benefit just by using, you know, a novel oral antiandrogen. So um, it really is stated that if, unless you know, there's a barrier such as a socioeconomic reason or perhaps a, a side effect reason. Patients really shouldn't uh, uh, just think that it's an LHRH alone or orchiectomy alone, or, you know, they, they really should be off combination therapy because they're living longer and their quality of life's improved in addition to the fact that their length of life is improved. And maybe touch on in this setting, um, what is the role of radiotherapy to the prostate? So in, in, in what scenario does the data suggest that there may be some value in combining radiotherapy along with, with systemic androgen deprivation? Yeah. Well, the, the, the treatment of the primary, right? This is not just unique to prostate. This is going on in colorectal and breast and other tumor sites where we're still figuring out what is the value of treating that primary tumor? Um, so there were a couple of studies that did look at the role of radiation in treating all comers um, with metastatic disease. And in the subset of patients that had that low volume metastatic burden, like we talked about, there has been some survival benefit even in patients where their primaries were treated with radiation therapy. Now, these studies are a little bit older. The radiation they received isn't exactly what you'd give today. Um, you know, there was probably not as much as you would give today. And, and there's some nuances there, but there is level one evidence to offer patients with low volume metastatic disease, primary radiation. What we don't have is that level one evidence for primary surgery. And so 
That is under study. And there's a large uh, Southwest Oncology Group trial, intergroup trial, European trial, looking at not just the role of surgery, but also a bigger um, look at a, a more of a confirmatory look at the role of radiation in that setting as well, and not just restricting it to the low volume patients. And we'll learn from that. But yes, outside of a clinical trial, probably surgery is not indicated um, with rare exception, other than perhaps a channel TR to open up their outlet. But uh, we are exploring the role of that. And again, the theory is that if you treat the primary, then you don't have future seeds to soil the metastatic environment. It doesn't really address the metastatic sites themselves that also produce new metastases. And so there is a role for stereotactic radiation in that setting too. But um, in terms of the primary, there is some evidence for oligometastatic or low-volume metastatic patients to treat the primary. So thus far, we've been talking a lot about uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, both uh, non-metastatic as well as metastatic. Let's let's transition now to the the castrate-resistant uh, prostate cancer, and, and maybe let's first talk about uh, non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. What are some of the new developments in in this disease space? Yeah. Well, when we talked earlier, and I'll come back to this, you know, we talked about when biochemical recurrence um, happens in patients who are not previously treated with hormonal therapy, we don't have good guidance on when to start the therapy and if that therapy would result in, you know, improved survival. That was an unmet need in the castration resistance state. And so three large trials flooded the market to try and determine this. They didn't want to wait, um, or maybe they didn't believe that they would have an impact on survival. And they compel, made a compelling argument that metastasis-free survival, which is development of metastatic disease and or death from disease, was an important endpoint. And the FDA believed in that. And so they conducted trials, three different trials, three different companies, uh, looking at apalutamide, darolutamide, or enzalutamide as compared to placebo when uh, used in combination with traditional LHRH. And, and what those studies did was they enriched their patient population, these rising PSAs, castrate level testosterone, uh, but no evidence of metastatic disease on conventional imaging. They enriched them with these rapid PSA doubling time patients, less than 10 months. Um, and so when they did that, they found that there was significant uh, benefit in reducing that metastasis-free survival, um, extending survival and, and significant improvement in metastasis-free survival with the use of those agents, all in independent uh, trials designed similarly. Um, those trials now have been followed longer, and all three of those trials have now hit with overall survival advantage as well. So I told you, you know, it's kind of a paradox in the in the metastatic uh, castration resistant or the non-metastatic castration resistant rising PSA with a rapid doubling time, we add an oral antiandrogen in these second-generation oral antiandrogens, we improve survival now. So we need to do the studies in the biochemical recurrent state to see if we get even a bigger bang for our buck. But right now, we don't have that data. So there is data in this area. And of course, I think the question is, what about PSMA scans? And how do these little small volume metastases affect these trials? And we really don't know, but we can imagine that many of the patients enrolled in these trials would have had small volume metastatic deposits. And so probably as long as you have this information, you could feel good about treating them in this fashion. The added 
role of additional treatments to those metastatic sites that are small could, could improve further the survival, but we don't have that data yet. So what about, so you clearly highlighted the importance of PSA doubling time in helping with the decision-making process when you have the those that are non-metastatic. What about now when we get to metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, what do the guidelines really highlight for this group? Again, you may find a patient that you either inherit or was in your practice, maybe one of your partners or you yourself, you forgot or you never do that you should order. So here's another opportunity for germline testing, right? So if they made it to metastatic disease and never got a germline test, you can do it now. And the reason it becomes even more important now is not only to assess perhaps family members' risks and other things like that, but there's some therapies that we'll talk about in a minute that you know, sort of as a prerequisite, look for these DNA damage repair gene um, alterations, and then there's therapies linked to it. So that's an important component. Um, when, when these patients develop metastatic castration-resistant disease, there's a lot of therapies that they're eligible for. Um, these include, you know, conventional docetaxel. So some patients have never seen docetaxel chemotherapy. They would be a candidate. There are certainly uh, patients that early in the development of this with low-volume metastatic sites would be candidates if they're minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic for the very first immune therapy that was out there for advanced prostate cancer, and that's cipulusal T. So that's an immune therapy, but it's in that real narrow window, metastatic CRPC, asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. Usually by the time they're taking strong pain medications, narcotics, um, their performance status is really declining. We don't, that, that approval is not there for the cipulusal T. So really you have to kind of be on the ball and understand that that's that window of opportunity. The chemotherapy, such as docetaxel, can be given in patients that are symptomatic and certainly, you know, uh, regardless of their disease burden, but it, it has effect. And then, of course, some of the drugs that we mentioned earlier, like enzalutamide, also has an indication in the CRPC state, and as well as um, abiraterone also has an indication there. Um, the, the bone targeted therapy, radium 223. Uh, it's an important one because it really is approved both pre or post docetaxel. So some people feel, you know, they have to progress through chemotherapy to be offered radium. But if they're symptomatic from bony metastases, they don't have visceral metastases, um, they could be a candidate for radium up front. And it has shown overall survival benefit um, in that setting as well. So um, radium-223 is certainly a consideration for those patients with symptomatic bone lesions. It's an alpha emitter. It goes right to the bone area, um, but it can be given pre or post chemo. Um, the use of cabazitaxel is also an important one. That is really a second line chemo. So um, the study that used cabazitaxel um, mandated they had progressed through docetaxel. And so you have that second line chemotherapy in patients who do progress through docetaxel as well. So you, you've talked to us a lot about, it seems like there's a lot of options available. You, you mentioned that there's a lot of different therapies we can give. Are there any sort of take-homes or key points with regards to sequencing? So for our listeners who say, well, you know, do I give A, B, C, and, and in what order? Is there any sort of tips or pearls or anything from the guidelines regarding how we sequence these agents? 
Yeah, too often uh, we we sort of beat a dead horse. We we are failing on our androgen axis, and we might know that there's two or three pills out there. So we go from pill A to pill B, and and usually when you're failing, say abiraterone, you're not going to have a good response to anzalutamide, and there may be a short-lived two three month type of thing, but it's certainly not a home run. So it's really recommended to look at an alternative um, mechanism of action. So if you've been doing primarily androgen-targeted therapy, switching to chemotherapy is going to get you a better response. And if you've been on chemotherapy and haven't been on the androgen-targeted therapy, that the opposite is true too. But continuing the same um, therapy, just switching medications is not effective. And so that is something we learned. Also, combining things, well, sounds great. We learn sometimes the hard way. And so one study, for example, looked at combining abiraterone and radium. And when they weren't really paying as much attention to the bone health, um, they found you know, a significantly higher rate of fractures and, and bone-related uh, side effects. So if you are giving radium, at least until you know, their bone health is, is really tightly uh, uh, monitored, you, you probably shouldn't be giving abiraterone. You should stop that therapy, give the radium, and then, you know, at a, maybe 30 days later, you could go back on it. But using them concomitantly uh, can actually um, add additional side effects and fractures that you're, it's an undesired side effect. So we're learning, but we're not there yet on all the different ways in which we can combine therapies. Um, I do think in the future, we will have immune therapies, chemotherapy, angiotensin receptor therapies combined with chemotherapy. Um, there, there, there'll be good combinations even in the CRPC state, but they have to be studied and you have to be covering the whole side effect, you know, considerations or, or you might miss something. And, you know, fracture in an elderly patient who has advanced prostate cancer can, can really lead to demise and even be lethal. So you really want to avoid that type of thing. And so maybe the last area I'd want to have you touch on is, you know, we've spoken a lot about uh, the androgen uh, pathways. Uh, we've talked about systemic chemotherapy in this armamentarium. But where are we with regard to a sort of more precision medicine and, and mutation-directed therapy? This would be a good place to bring up the picture of an infant. You know, I mean, I really think we're at the very beginnings of this. Um, but, you know, having said that, a couple of years ago, we had nothing. So um, there... We mentioned the germline testing and, and you know, that can be done. Uh, I have heard that, you know, there's advancements in some of these uh, genetic testing and it's been three or five years since they had germline testing. There could be a role for repeating that. But somatic testing is also an important part. And that's these um, sort of under pressure selective changes that the tumors go through that also can be targets for therapy. So an example of that would be something like a microsatellite instability high tumor. And if you were to determine that based on either a biopsy, which was the only way historically to get tissue for somatic testing, and now there's liquid biopsies and we're able to obtain some of that through foundation one and, and a blood test if there's enough circulating tumor cells. But if you were to find that, albeit rare, then they would be a candidate for pembrolizumab. So there's an immune-based therapy that's agnostic to the tumor type and would really just depend on that finding. Um, back to germline testing and or somatic testing, those DNA repair um, mutations, if they are harbored in the tumor or in the patient's germline, then those patients are now 
candidates for the one of the two, and there will be probably in the next coming year, probably five um, PARP inhibitors. So there's two PARP inhibitors, um, Alaparib and Rucaparib, that are FDA approved uh, for patients with sort of that second line uh, salvage therapy in the CRPC space. That's at least how they were initially um, indicated. But you know, to um, be eligible for those currently, you need to have those mutations. So we're starting to have some treatments that are linked to some of the genetics. So that's a form of precision therapy. Even more exciting would be things like there's an FDA approved agent called lutetium, and that's a beta emitting. Uh, so you get a PSMA scan, and if the scan is positive, then you have a therapeutic that can sort of deliver a payload to those PSMA positive sites. So that's not currently available in my neck of the woods, but it is FDA approved. It's been used in Europe and it's coming soon uh, to a theater near you. But that's just the beginning. And so pretty soon there'll be a lot of combinations and other things linked to these scans. And that's real precision, right? If you, if you could just deliver you know, a, a toxic payload but only to the target, um, that that's where it's really exciting. So I think there's a lot coming um, and we're starting and we're starting to learn. It's really important that urologists keep up with this. Even if you don't administer some of these therapies in your own practice, you still continue to quarterback those patients. They have a longstanding relationship with you and they don't want to give that up and you don't want to give them up. So I think letting them be aware of these things and offering these therapies uh, in that multidisciplinary model is is uh, sort of the the best thing you can do for your patients to extend their life and the quality of their life. Yeah, it's it's really outstanding, and and I think uh, you, you you that final point you made is just so critical um, uh, for us in maintaining those long relationships with these patients. Who in many cases you started the journey with them, right? I mean, very very rarely do do we have we're not not as frequently do we have just the advanced prostate cancer, but a lot of times you've seen the journey from initial diagnosis and then the entire spectrum of them progressing through the disease states. Well, Mike, I, I really want to thank you uh, very much. Uh, it's amazing, and, and it, it's nice. In 35 minutes, you've given our listeners the entire summative of uh, what was probably uh, hours and hours of uh, guidelines panel work. Uh, but thank you so much for really joining us and for your thoughtfulness. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I want to thank all the members of the guidelines for this important contribution. Uh, for our listeners, if you have uh, any additional interest in learning more about this, certainly visit the guidelines page and you can look at a lot of the, the work that Dr. Cookson referenced in greater detail. And certainly you can visit us at AUA.